Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Truth and Justice Reply Brief. Today's episode is in response to the prosecutors' part 11 of their series on the Anand Syed case. In this episode, Brett and Alice are setting the stage for their final theories. The entire premise in this one is to discredit the remaining possible theories that suggest that Adnan could be innocent. It would actually be a good one for a drinking game. I've been telling you since episode 1 that their series is a master class in gaslighting. They literally set out to make you think that you have lost your mind if you'd even dare to consider any theory other than Adnan killed Hay. Now, if you're not a big drinker, you could play a game where you have a drink every time they say the word crazy in this episode. Because of course, you'd have to be crazy to believe that any of the actual evidence suggests any kind of police conspiracy. And if you're just like, eh, F it, I've got nothing to do for the next couple of days, you could have a drink every time they laugh at something that you believe in. But I would proceed with caution on that one because there's a lot of laughter in this one. A lot. At one point, Alice even says that she hates to make fun of other people while she's making fun of other people and hysterically laughing. Their episode covers five main points. And this one's going to be the opposite of the earlier episodes. In those episodes, they were supposed to be presenting the, quote, facts of the case. And since the facts of the case disproved their entire premise and theory, they breezed right by them as quickly as possible. So they had short episodes, and the replies were much longer than theirs. In some cases, it took me two full hour-long episodes to correct all the nonsense they put out in just one. But now as we approach the end, things are flipped. They're no longer presenting their facts. Now, they are merely trying to convince you that your interpretation of the real facts is wrong and silly. And it takes them a long time to do that, because they have to go on and on to explain things away, make up outlandish versions of your theory so that they can tell you how insane that hyperbolic version is, they need time to laugh and joke around at your expense, it takes a while. But the reply to that type of garbage doesn't take that long at all. I'm just going to cut through the BS and give you the facts. The five things they address in this episode are 1. The idea that incoming calls cannot be used for location. 2. Jay's story couldn't have come from the police because of Jen. 3. Was there a phone booth at Best Buy? 4. Hay's car. Did the police know where it was before Jay led them to it and was it moved? And number 5. Christy Vinson. 
Was she home on the night Hay was killed? And did Adnan and Jay visit her on that very night? So their hope is that by the end of this episode, you'll believe that you really can trust incoming calls for location. Jen proves that Jay's story couldn't have come from the police. There absolutely was a payphone at Best Buy. There's no possible way that the police knew where the car was before Jay led them to it, and it was certainly never moved. And Christy was definitely home on the night Hay was killed and definitely witnessed Adnan getting the call from Adcock. We're also going to quickly explain away the lack of forensics linking Adnan to the crime, so I guess technically there are six topics, but I'll just cover that one real quick right now. They say that there are no forensics like DNA or hair or anything linking Adnan to Hay's body because there were none at all. There were also no unknown hairs or DNA or anything linking anyone to Hay's body, and I just want to tell you, that's not true. There were hairs found on her body. They were compared to Jay, Adnan, and Hay, and they didn't match, so they came from someone unknown. There was unknown DNA found on Hay's shoes in her trunk, where Jay said the shoes were put after she was killed, by the way. And there's unknown DNA under Hay's fingernails that didn't belong to Jay, Adnan, or Hay. So just know that. I'm not going to get into it any further. We might touch on it more in another episode. But getting back to the first five things, if all of those are true, then Adnan must be guilty. There's just no other explanation. So let's go ahead and address these five topics. First, the incoming calls. Now, they're going to go deeper into the PCR hearing where the issue was argued in the next episode. But in this one, they just hit on it quickly enough to make it seem like the whole idea of incoming calls not being reliable for location is nonsense. They say that neither the defense or the state's experts in that PCR hearing really had a good understanding of why incoming calls can't be used for location. And this is patently false. You can read the transcripts of that hearing for yourself and see. Me personally, I was sitting right there in the courthouse, listening to and watching all of the testimony. There was no confusion by the defense expert. He explained it quite clearly. The state's expert, who tried to refute him, at least pretended that he didn't understand, and perhaps he really didn't. He actually got mad and accused the defense of tricking him when they presented him with the actual document that was presented to Gutierrez at the time of trial, and he couldn't make heads or tails of it. And if anyone can't understand the science regarding the reliability of incoming calls, it was made quite clear in that hearing by using actual provable examples from Adnan's actual cell phone records. To cite one in those records, there are two incoming calls. I think they were like 30 minutes apart. It might have been 25. But one of the calls showed a location of Baltimore, and the next showed a location of downtown Washington, D.C. If any of you remember the social media memes going around back in 2016 when this hearing happened, you probably recall all the helicopter jokes. And that was because Adnan's attorney presented this evidence to the state's expert asked him to explain how it's possible for Adnan to have been in both of these locations minutes apart. And when the expert couldn't give an answer, Justin, Adnan's attorney, asked if the expert thought that Adnan might have owned a helicopter that we weren't aware of. So if anyone's trying to tell you that incoming calls into that phone at that time period can be used to determine location, despite AT&T's explicit warning that they cannot be, you can tell them that there is absolute proof that they are unreliable. You can't be in Baltimore and downtown Washington, D.C. at the same time. It only looked like Adnan was in the call records because, you guessed it, 
They were incoming calls, which are unreliable for location. So don't buy their lawyer explaining away of this. What they tell you in the episode is that the argument was eventually thrown out because it was too late to argue it, which is true. But what they fail to mention in the episode is that it was a winning argument. The judge was not confused. And in fact, he overturned Adnan's conviction based specifically on the fact that incoming calls were not reliable and Gutierrez did not properly cross-examine the state's expert. The incoming call cell phone science was a slam dunk for Adnan. You cannot use those Leakin Park pings or any other incoming calls for location. The only reason that ruling was overturned later was because it was deemed to be time-barred, meaning Adnan's defense didn't bring it up in an earlier appeal, and therefore it was too late to raise the issue in 2016. So again, don't be fooled by the ha-ha-ha, I'm a lawyer, and even I can't understand the cell phone science, so surely you can't, nonsense. The only people confused by that testimony in the hearing was apparently Brett and Alice. Their next segment gets into when did Jay tell Jen that Adnan killed Hay? Now we've covered all this in great detail already, so here's the quick Reader's Digest version. First, they act as if there is some question about whether or not Jen talked to Jay between her February 26th interview, where she told the police that she didn't know anything, also the interview where she said that based on the questions they were asking her, it seemed like they had already talked to someone else, and her February 27th interview, where she told the police what Jay told her. They cite a few examples and theories about whether Jen did or did not talk to Jay, completely ignoring the fact that in that February 27th interview, Jen specifically says that she spoke with Jay about all of this the night before, between the two interviews. This is not a question that's up for debate. Both Jay and Jen have said that they talked about what Jen should say to the police the night before her recorded interview. We know that happened. So there's that. But then they go on to say that it doesn't really matter because we know that Jen relayed the story to the police before the police ever talked to Jay. And therefore, the story is Jay's and could not have come from the police. They say this in their episode as though there is no debate whatsoever about whether or not Jay had been working with Ritz and McGillivary before they spoke to Jen. As if that's just a settled fact. When the reality is, all evidence points to Jay speaking with the detectives on multiple occasions prior to Jen's interview and Jay's first official interview. Like I said, I've been over this in detail before, but just to quickly recap, Jen says that Ritz and McGillivary were asking questions in her first interview that made her think that they had already spoken to someone because they were confronting her with details from Jay's story. Christy Vincent was with Jen when they approached Jen the first time and she was confused about how they knew to ask for Jen by name. The official story is that they were just working off phone records. They supposedly skipped Jay's number and went to the second number on the list instead that was registered to Anthony Pusateri, and yet they walked right up to Jen and called her out by name. Jay's friend Ernest saw Jay sitting in a police car talking to detectives prior to Jen's interview. Jay's boss said that on two occasions before February 26, Jay was picked up at work by the police and taken down to the station to be questioned about Hayes' murder. Jay himself said in his interview with The Intercept that Ritz and McGillivary had been questioning him over and over again, 
harassing him for weeks before he finally did the first official recorded interview after they had spoken to Jen. And most recently, Jay told his ex in the HBO documentary that the questioning began when he got busted with a bunch of marijuana, and he then offered up the story about Adnan to get himself out of trouble. So just know this. When they state as a fact that Jay never spoke with the police about Hay's murder prior to Jen's recorded interview, they are ignoring all of that, including, and I cannot state enough how ridiculous this is, Jay himself saying that he was interviewed multiple times before that interview. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. A common misconception about relationships is that the good ones have to be easy. That's not always true. Sometimes the best relationships happen when both people put in the work to make them great. I have a wonderful relationship with my wife. In fact, I think our relationship is as good as they come. But it did take work. We had to learn each other and grow together over the years to get where we are today. And therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all of your relationships whether with friends, work, your significant other, or anyone, even blending families together. My relationship with my stepkids was definitely positively impacted by therapy in the early years of my marriage to Becky. Now, if you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you're not meshing well, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com truth to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot truth. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The next segment is kind of interesting and super annoying to listen to, in my opinion. There is so much fake laughing and sarcasm in this segment, it just grosses me out. But the thing that they're addressing here is the question as to whether or not there was a payphone at Best Buy, which is a reasonable question and one that has been asked many times before. Sarah Koenig spent a considerable amount of time on this during Serial. The idea being that if there was no payphone at Best Buy, then Jay's story couldn't be true. As if that one inconsistency would convince people. Personally, I've never dedicated any time to the payphone because it really doesn't matter if there was one at the store or not. If there was a phone, 
then that doesn't prove Jay's story is true. And if there wasn't one, how is that any different than Jay saying that the come get me call came after 345? Or that it came from Edmonton Avenue? Or that his entire story is literally impossible? Or when he said there was snow on the ground that evening? Or that there was a path through the woods leading to where Hay was buried? Or that he was at Christie's when the call log proves that it was impossible? Or that he dropped Adnan off at the front door of the school when track practice was outside behind the school at the track? My point is that one mistake in this narrative wouldn't change the minds of people that aren't swayed by literally dozens of provably false elements of Jay's story. But Brett and Alice want to talk about it because it gave them an opportunity to laugh at and demean Adnan. So here's the big reveal. We know for sure that there was, in fact, a payphone at Best Buy because in the notes of an interview conducted by one of Adnan's law clerks, someone named Kali, he noted that it came out in that interview with Adnan that if Jay was talking about the area of the parking lot where he and Hay had had sex, he wouldn't then walk all the way over to the payphone. So they call this proof positive that there was a payphone, because Adnan mentioned it. Now, like I said, I don't care if there was a phone. This is literally one of at least six places where Jay has said Adnan killed Hay. So really, what difference does it make? But it's also worth noting that these are notes. Notes that Kali was writing to himself. Alice herself says in the episode that lawyers will use their own kind of shorthand in their notes. Do we know that Adnan actually said there's a payphone there? Could he have assumed that there was a phone inside the store and that was a long walk from where he and Hay had parked before? I don't know, and neither do they. It's such a huge leap to use that note as absolute proof that a payphone existed. And again, I don't care if there was a phone there. It makes zero difference in this case. If we don't care that Jay said the call came at a time that is 100% impossible, then why are we splitting hairs about this phone? In any case, the real reason they bring it up is so that they can laugh and laugh and laugh about the next note, where Kali wrote in parentheses, Adnan doesn't like to walk. How hilarious that a guy on the track team would use that as an excuse. And hey, maybe it's a little funny, but also we have no idea if Adnan actually said that. Again, these are Kali's private notes about the interview. Maybe he just wrote that because of a previous discussion where Adnan had told him that he would get rides from Hay to the back of the school because he doesn't like walking. Maybe the reason it's in parentheses is because that's not something Adnan said, but instead it's Kali just spitballing of ways to argue against it. Who knows? And more importantly, who cares? There's nothing productive at all about this segment of their episode. They want to make fun of Adnan and make him look stupid building on the entire premise of the episode, which is to make you feel stupid for supporting him. And that's their setup before they get to the longest segment, Hayes' car. They first make you feel dumb before they tell you how dumb you are for believing that Jay didn't lead them to the car. And look, facts are facts. They have the upper hand on this one. They have the police and Jay saying that he led them to the car, and we cannot prove otherwise. As much as folks want to say that the police told Jay where the car was, the reality is that's just a theory. It has not been proven. So it's a lot easier to argue this point from the guilty side. You have to know that right up front. And it's also the thing that everyone in the guilty camp hangs their hat on. 
You can show them every inconsistency and every story. You can show them maps and call logs and drive times and prove to them that none of this is possible. You can show them all the reasons why we know that Adnan never left the school that day and none of it matters to them. Their response is always the same. Jay led the police to the car. Period. If Jay wasn't actually involved in Hayes' murder and he's making up this whole story, then how did he know where the car was? And the response from the innocent side is always, because the police told him where it was. But I would caution you against that because stating that as a fact, when you can't prove it, feeds right into their game. Now you're a conspiracy theorist. Instead, what you should be doing is asking them this question. What evidence is there that Jay actually led the police to the car? And here's the truth about that. The totality of the evidence is Ritz and McGillivary saying that that's what happened. In the pre-interview, there are no notes indicating that Jay told them where the car is. In the recorded interview, Jay never tells them where the car is. The best we get is that it's in the city and not the county. And when Jay testified at trial, he said that he led them to the wrong place. Gutierrez caught him, I think by accident, but maybe it was on purpose. When he was on the stand, she asked him to confirm that he took the police to the wrong location when they were going to the car. And she said it in a way that made it seem like she knew that to be true. And when she did that, Jay confirmed that he didn't take them to the correct location. So that's the evidence that Jay led them to the car. Now, you can't counter that with, so we know he didn't do it. But you can respond with the evidence that seems to suggest that not only did Jay not lead him to the car, but in fact the place where the car was found might not have even been where it was originally dumped by Hayes' killer. Now the immediate reaction to that will be just like what you hear from Brett and Alice. Fake laughter, give me a break. Brett even calls folks who think it's possible that the car was moved or that Jay didn't know where it is, tap, tap, tap people. Because you know, you're an idiot if you acknowledge the actual taps that you can actually hear when Jay actually apologizes for getting off script and changes his story, you crazy conspiracy theorist you. But let's not present it as fact, but rather stay calm and just lay out the reasons why the discovery of the car isn't quite as cut and dry as the detectives say that it is. As I just mentioned, it's odd at best that Jay supposedly told the police the most critical piece of missing information in this case where the car was, during the pre-interview, and they made not one single note about it. It's even odder that in the recorded interview, they don't even ask him where it is. They don't ask for directions, they don't ask what route they took to get there, nothing. They only ask if it's in the county or the city, in their jurisdiction or out of their jurisdiction. It's tough to explain why they wouldn't at least attempt to get Jay to tell them where the car was on the record. Doesn't prove anything, but also shouldn't be ignored. Then, like I said earlier, we have Jay testifying that he led the police to the wrong place when looking for the car. I mean, that's kind of a problem if you're being objective. Then add to that the fact that while Jay supposedly confided his involvement in the murder to Jen, he evidently didn't even mention the fact that they ditched the car to her. When asked in her interview what she knew about the car, she said she didn't know anything at all about Hayes' car. She just knows Jay was driving Adnan's. And building off of that, weirdly, 
when the report was written about that interview, where we see in the transcript that Jen knows nothing about the car, the detectives wrote that she told them the car was on Edgewood Avenue. One, that's a lie. Two, if Jen didn't tell them it's on Edgewood Avenue, and the police didn't know it was on Edgewood Avenue, then how would they write in the report that the car was on Edgewood, which is where it was actually found? Then there's the fact that the ignition cover was missing on Hayes' car, which happens to be the thing you would need to remove if you were going to hotwire it. Also, the windshield wiper lever. It would also need to be removed in order to remove the cover, which you need to remove to hotwire the car. Weirdly, the dangling lever was used to bolster Jay's story about Hay kicking it off, but we know for 100% fact that it was not broken off. It was pulled out. That was forensically tested and verified. The lever was absolutely not broken. So that, of course, lends to the theory that the car was hotwired or attempted to be hotwired, which then leads into the hypothesis that the car was moved to the final location well after the night of the murder. Brett addresses this in their episode. He talks about how during the filming of the HBO documentary that the investigators hired an expert to do some experiments on the grass from the parking area. The reason was because during the undisclosed investigation, it was noticed that the grass under Hayes' car was green, whereas the grass under the car next to it was brown and dead. The theory there is that Hayes' car must not have been parked in that place for six weeks or the grass under her car would also be dead. Brett accurately pointed out that the results of that experiment were inconclusive, and he left it at that. What he doesn't address is the evidence that I've always found far more revealing, and the expert on the documentary also mentioned it. And that's the fact that there appears to be green grass blades stuck to the top of the tires. That's a problem if that's what we're really seeing. While it's extremely difficult to determine the amount of time it would take for live growing grass under a car to discolor, What's not hard to figure out is that dead grass, not attached to the ground, doesn't stay green for six weeks. I'm certainly no scientist, but I do know that when I mow my lawn, the grass clippings begin to discolor by the very next day. And within a week, the clippings are dried out and brown. The problem is that the photos aren't high enough quality to really zoom in and confirm that what we're seeing is indeed green grass. But it's something else to keep in the back of your mind. But the most important part of what we learned in the documentary, that the prosecutors shockingly don't mention, is that one of the residents of that area, and not just of the area, this woman actually lives directly across the alley from where the car was found, she was interviewed by the investigators. As it turns out, she and her neighbor have both lived there for decades, and they were living right there in 1999 and apparently have always been very vigilant in making sure there wasn't any riffraff parking cars in that lot. This is a short clip from the HBO doc. Give it a listen. So what if there was a car that had been parked there by someone and left for six weeks? It would not have set no six to eight weeks without any one of us, Gene or I, finding out why was it still there. We would call 311 and tell them about a car. It's none of the neighbors around. And what would the city do? They would come out and they would check it out, tag it, you know, tow truck and tow them away. That's why I say six weeks, no. Isn't it funny how Brett and Alice will do all this research and are happy to quote the parts of the documentary that support their narrative, 
like the inconclusive results on the grass, but they won't even mention to you the fact that the woman who was living right there is positive that that car was not parked there for six weeks. And yes, I know the guilty crowd will argue that her memory's faulty. But if we're being objective, she's not trying to recall any specific details of a car. What she's recalling is that she and her neighbor have always watched that lot and have always called the police if there was a car parked there that they didn't recognize. That's not a smoking gun, but again, it should be considered if you're trying to come to an objective conclusion. But for some reason, the unbiased presentation by Brett and Alice didn't even mention it. They didn't mention that the grass expert noted that the green grass on the tires is problematic. They didn't mention that the wiper handle was tested and it was proven that it wasn't broken off by a kick. They didn't mention the missing ignition cover. It's no wonder they were able to present such a convincing argument. That's easy to do if you just pretend like the contradicting evidence doesn't exist. So, did Jay lead the police to the car? I don't believe so. I really don't. I do not believe that if Jay knew where that car was and the detectives didn't, that they would have not made a single note when Jay told them where it was. And I do not believe that they wouldn't have asked him where it was on the record. And I don't believe that Jay would have testified that he led them to the wrong place if he actually led them to the right place. There is no actual evidence that Jay knew where that car was. None. And there's quite a bit of evidence suggesting that he didn't. So my conclusion is that he didn't. But again, that's just my opinion. I wish I could tell you that there's a way to prove it. There just isn't. With that being said, Brett and Alice's explanation for what us tap, tap, tap people think is ridiculous. They spend a lot of time, probably like 80% of their time talking about the car, again, going through all the times when the police put out bolos and requested helicopters, etc., looking for the car. They insist that the working theory is that Ritz and McGillivary knew where it was the whole time, and they're able to easily disprove that and make you feel stupid for believing it. But as I've said over and over again, I can't speak for everyone, but I can tell you that I don't believe for a minute that they knew where that car was for more than a couple days at most before Jay was interviewed. And I don't think anyone else does either. The thing that continues to nag at me is Sergeant Lehman requesting to have the satellite parking lot at the airport searched on the 27th, and we never get a report on the results of that search. He asked for it to be checked, and the next thing you know, 12 hours later, Jay supposedly leads them to the car. I had to make a guess, I'd say it's at least possible that they found the car in that parking lot. But that would then involve the police moving it back into the city. And when it comes to moving the car, to be honest, I'm on the fence on that one. I think that it's very possible, but admittedly the evidence isn't very strong. It's hard to imagine police officers doing something that sinister, but we know for a fact that Ritz and McGillivary and Lehman have all done horrible things in other cases that resulted in convicting innocent people. And that's the problem with the guilty argument. It has to revolve around the idea that the detectives wouldn't take steps to frame an innocent person. But in this case, we know that they not only would, but they have done exactly that. I'm sorry, but you can't be discussing detectives with a proven track record of forcing witnesses to give false statements to convict innocent people and then pretend like it's ridiculous that they would do precisely that in this case. I said this in episode one of the series, and you see it in full effect here in this episode. 
Their gaslighting MO is to present an extreme hyperbolic version of a legitimate theory, then point out how wild it is to believe it. In this episode, they overuse the word framed. They keep saying it as though what happened is that Ritz and McGillivary just randomly picked out Adnan and then they found a way to frame him. When the reality is that what happened is they pulled the phone records and the first person they talked to was his black drug dealing friend. And if you've read the exoneration orders for their other victims, you know that's exactly what they look for to close cases. They threaten Jay, tell him they're going to charge him with the murder. Jay does what his friends say Jay does, and he points the finger at Adnan to save his own ass. Ritz and McGillivary help him craft a story to close their case, just like they did with their other victims. Adnan's great offense was having a black friend with drugs on him. That's the frame job. But in an effort to make the idea of framing Adnan seem ridiculous, Brett and Alice lay out some real gems. For example, they suggest that if the police wanted to frame Adnan, they would have found a more credible witness than Jay, as if they had other options. And my personal favorite, if they were going to frame Adnan, they would have planted something of Adnan's in the car, put his DNA in the car, for example. Uh, Newsflash, they didn't have anything of Adnan's to put in the fucking car, even if they wanted to. They didn't search his house or his car, they had nothing. What they had was Jay. And here's another newsflash. That's all they needed. You can pretend all you want that a good frame job would have been more elaborate and better organized, but it didn't have to be. It worked. Having a witness say that he helped bury the body is good enough. It works. It worked in this case, and it worked in their other cases. You just need a witness. That's all you need. And it's such a disingenuous and circular argument. This case is so strong that it's obvious Adnan did it. No question. Also, this case is weak, and if they were going to frame Adnan, they would have built a better case. Well, which is it? Is it a weak case or a strong case? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection. The lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 
The last segment of the prosecutor's episode is all about Christy Vinson. And this is another one of those elements of the case where you can lose the forest for the trees. Everyone gets caught up in arguing about the details of whether Adnan and Jay were at her house on the night of the murder or on a different night. Or maybe not at all. When in reality, it doesn't matter. Christy's story to police isn't anything super incriminating. Her story is that Jay, who she describes as Jen's friend, showed up at her apartment with Adnan, who she's never met. She says that they came in and sat down. They didn't talk much. Mostly they were just watching TV. She says Adnan was just kind of slumped over, and at one point he asked how to get rid of a high. While they were there, Adnan answered a call on his cell phone. She says that she thinks she remembers him saying, what am I going to do if they come talk to me? What am I going to say? And then she says she didn't pay any attention to the rest of that conversation. Shortly after that, Jay and Adnan get up and leave. She looks out the window, sees them sitting in the car for a bit, and then they drive away. That's the whole story. So there are three possible scenarios here if we assume that Christy is telling the full truth and hasn't been influenced by anyone prior to our interview. For context, the interview was on March 9th, nine days after Adnan was arrested, and just shy of two months after the incident in question. There's indications in the transcript that there was an unrecorded pre-interview. At one point, they're trying to figure out what kind of hat Jay was wearing, and McGillivray says that they had talked about it earlier and they had figured it out. Also for context, Christy has stated on the record that she didn't independently recall that this event happened on January 13th. She was told, based on phone records, that that was the night in question. So with all that being said, these are the three possibilities. Again, assuming everything Christy said is accurate. One. Adnan killed Hay, and the trip to Christie's happened on January 13th. Jay and Adnan just decided to stop by Jen's friend's house for a bit before going to bury Hay's body. 2. Adnan is innocent, and this was just another day, and the trip to Christie's did indeed happen on January 13th. Jay and Adnan are cruising around getting high and decided to stop by Jen's friend's house to hang out. Or 3. Christie has the wrong day entirely. And this weird visit happened, but not on a day that matters at all. So let's cover that one first, and we'll work backwards, since this is what Brett and Alice are talking about in their episode. Does Christy have the right day? And the answer is, probably not. This is pretty simple. Christy only thought it was the 13th because she was told it was the 13th. Jay only said it was the 13th after the detectives mislabeled a tower location on their map, and he needed to give them a reason why he was in that part of town. So in Jay's first version of the story, there are zero trips to Christie's. In the second version, where everyone seems to agree that at the very least, Jay is trying to create a narrative that fits the locations on the map, he changes the story from he and Adnan eating at McDonald's because Adnan was breaking his fast when he got the call from Adcock to they were sitting at Christie's house on the other side of town when he got that call. So already from Jay's side of the story, it's suspicious. And then we have Christie's class schedule. For most people, this closes the case on the trip to Christie's. Christie was taking a college course that only met three times per semester. It's a course that requires you to be there on all three days. And she herself acknowledges that she got a good grade in that class, and that would not be the case if she had missed one. And also that she absolutely wouldn't have skipped it, according to her. That class met on January 13th from 6 to 9 p.m. at the exact time when Jay says he and Adnan were sitting with Christie in her living room. So like I said, for most, that's case closed. 
We already knew the story was bullshit. You don't mix up McDonald's with a person's apartment. And Christie only came into the narrative at all based on a mistake on a cell tower map. And here we have actual evidence that proves that if we assume Christie is doing her best to tell the truth, this visit surely did happen, but it happened on a different day. In fact, in her police interview, she says that Jay and Adnan were talking about going to a video store. And one might conclude that they were talking about the video store where Jay worked beginning on January 31st. Maybe not, but certainly possible. So like I said, for most people, the trip to Christie's must have been on a different day. But Brett and Alice try to find a way for it to fit. And what they come up with is that either Christie just went to class late that night, with no evidence whatsoever that she did so, or according to Brett, the most likely scenario is that class was canceled due to the winter storm that came in that night. He actually says this is most likely what happened. You can believe what you want, but again, there's zero evidence to support this, and you should know that January 13th was a beautiful 55-degree day. And the evening was calm, quiet, and still warm. And the winter storm that occurred began around 2 o'clock in the morning the next day. It would have zero effect whatsoever on a class that ran from 6 to 9 p.m. Now, as a former college student and a former college instructor myself, I can tell you that no one's canceling a class, especially not one that only meets three times a semester, because a storm might be coming five hours after class ended. But nonetheless, according to Brett, that's most likely what happened. So you decide for yourself. But my conclusion is that very obviously, Christy is remembering a visit that happened on a different day. As we continue on and moving backward through these scenarios, we next have the possibility that Adnan and Jay did drop by on the 13th, but Adnan did not kill Hay. There's not really much to discuss here. It would be just two guys cruising around, getting high, who stop by someone's house and act weird, and then they leave. If any of you have ever had a high friend stop by your house and act weird, or if any of you have ever been that high friend, you know this is quite plausible. It's why I don't think Christy is lying. I think for sure at some point these two knuckleheads dropped by, I just don't think it was after murdering someone. Which leads me to the third scenario, the state's theory. Adnan killed Hay, he called Jay to come see the body, they then moved the car and ditched it, then they go buy some weed, then they go watch the sunset together while they smoke weed, then Adnan goes to track practice, then Jay picks him up, at this point they need to deal with the body, and also Adnan hasn't eaten all day, so Jay says, hey, I've got an idea. There's a girl that I barely know. She's Jen's friend and lives on the other side of town. Before we do anything else, I think we should go sit in her living room for a bit. And truly, that's all they did in Jay and Christie's story. They didn't go there because they needed something. There was no purpose for the trip. They weren't buying weed from her. They weren't getting shovels from her. She just said they walked in, they barely spoke, they just sat there, and then they left. So that's the guilty argument. That's what you have to believe to wedge this trip into the narrative. Adnan has murdered someone. Jay has seen the body. They still have to bury the body, but first, they need to go to a person's house who Adnan has never met and Jay barely knows. Like I said, in her interview, she described Jay as, not her friend, as Jen's friend. I mean, if you want a theory that's worth laughing at, there you have it. But of course, Brett and Alice don't laugh at this one. Instead, they make up a scenario out of whole cloth that class must have been canceled because of a storm that came in the next day. Because they're just so sure this visit 
had to have happened on the night Hay was killed. Because if it didn't, oh, I don't know, it might be even more difficult to believe any of Jay's story. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com Design Created manages and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kaywood Yomnik, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review doesn't cost you a penny and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible if you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering you can submit your cases on our website truthandjusticepod.com just click on the case submission button and fill out the form and the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations you can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com you can like our facebook page follow us on instagram or join in on the conversation on the truth and justice podcast fans page for all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod, and I can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch, but as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>